2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: A perplexing death by spontaneous combustion.
3: Some of the aspects of this case were so bizarre, her death seemed almost unnatural. The humble beginnings of a game-changing pitch.
4: Strike
5: three, he's out. He can't figure out what happened.
4: And a bandit with impeccable manners. The robber very graciously said, Ma'am, I'm not here for your money. I'm here for the money of Wells Fargo.
0: Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. St. Petersburg, Florida. Nicknamed the Sunshine City, this coastal town averages 361 sun-drenched days a year. And just steps away from the breathtaking downtown waterfront is an institution that catalogs the area's bright past, the St. Petersburg Museum of History. On display is an 1860s all-metal Velocipede bike, a 19th-century post office counter and a replica of the airboat that made the world's first commercial flight. But set aside from these eye-catching artifacts is a seemingly plain item that is singed by intrigue.
3: The artifact itself is uh, three separate binders. There are a number of papers. They are
0: 62, 63 years old. They have yellowed over the years. And according to St. Petersburg police major, Michael Kovacev, This artifact tells the story of a woman who met a bizarre and blazing fate. What happened here seemed obvious, but actually it was anything but. What inflammatory event is documented by this dossier? And why does it continue to confound authorities to this day? July 2nd, 1951, St. Petersburg, Florida. At just after 8 a.m. on this summer day, The landlady of an apartment complex on Cherry Street visits the home of a 67-year-old tenant named Mary Reeser. But when Reeser doesn't answer, she grabs the door handle and quickly notices it's hot to the touch. She was alarmed and, and she went to seek help. With the aid of bystanders, she forces her way inside and sees a room full of smoke. But nothing could prepare them for what they discovered. All that remained of Ms. Reeser was a pile
3: of ashes, some bones, and an intact foot, as well as her shoe.
0: When cops and firefighters arrive at the scene, they notice that the fire that consumed Mrs. Reeser is bizarrely contained to just one spot. Aside from the smoke damage on the walls and the ceiling, nothing else in the apartment
3: is destroyed. The fire was contained in an area directly around Ms.
0: Reeser and her chair. And while closely examining Mrs. Reeser's remains, they discover that her skull is abnormally small. In fact, it appears that it has shrunk. Some of the aspects of this case were so
3: bizarre, her death seemed almost unnatural.
0: Unable to determine the cause of the mysterious blaze, local authorities turned to the FBI for help. And after thoroughly examining the physical evidence and this case file, now on display at the St. Petersburg Museum of History, they determine that the blaze was caused by nothing more than a cigarette Reeser was smoking as she fell asleep. But the bizarre details from the case catch the eye of renowned forensic anthropologist and fire expert, Wilton Krogman. An intrigued Krogman gains access to photos from the scene, as well as Reeser's remains and draws a startling conclusion. Mr. Crogman
3: completely disagreed with what the FBI and the police department had to say about Ms. Reeser's death.
0: Crogman determines that the investigators failed to address several glaring abnormalities, most notably the fire's isolated damage and the near-total reduction of Mrs. Reeser's body to ashes the body would have had to
3: have been at a temperature of at least 3,000 degrees for it to reach the level of uh, cremation that it did. But the most troubling aspect of the case is Mrs. Reeser's shrunken skull. Mr. Krogman felt that the fact that Mary Reeser's skull had shrunken was completely implausible. Skulls tend to explode or tend to get larger with any type of fire, and this seemed to be opposite of what happened in this case. So what could possibly explain the mysterious death of Mary Reeser? Mr. Crogman felt that lightning was a possible cause for her death.
0: But a lightning strike would have left entry and exit marks on the apartment, and Reeser's showed no such scars. Others theorize that Reeser was murdered, and that her killer reduced her body to cinders with a blowtorch. But the much-beloved Reeser had no known enemies— and her apartment bore no signs of a break-in. But by far the most intriguing hypothesis centers on a seemingly rare and storied phenomenon. Many
3: believe that Miss Reeser died of spontaneous human combustion, where the body
0: becomes its own igniter. A chemical reaction believed to originate within the body, spontaneous combustion is said to generate a staggering heat that incinerates the victim but many find this theory lacking.
3: The idea of human combustion in the academic or scientific community is viewed with great skepticism. Still, the exact cause of Mary Reeser's demise remains unknown. The incident occurred almost 62 years ago, and it continues to be a mystery to this day.
0: And at the St. Petersburg Museum of History, This dossier illuminates the tale of a woman who went up in flames for extraordinarily obscure reasons. Known as the rubber capital of the world, Akron, Ohio is the birthplace of the tire industry. But it also houses an institution dedicated to the study of another resilient tool, the human mind. At the Center for the History of Psychology, Visitors can explore scientific objects, such as a phrenology bust, once used for mapping brain functions, and a 1930s simulator to train fighter pilots for war. But there's one artifact in the collection which speaks to a much darker facet of the human condition.
6: The artifact is probably about three feet long. It weighs no more than 10 pounds. Silver in color, nothing spectacular about it, just to look at.
0: According to Assistant Director Kathy Fay, this rather unassuming object represents a shocking truth.
6: It tells us a lot about the human experience and makes us all think a little bit about how we would behave in certain situations.
0: What was this box designed to do? And what does it reveal about humankind's capacity for evil? 1961, New Haven, Connecticut. A 41-year-old man named Joseph Dimmo is intrigued by an ad in a local paper. Yale University's psychology department is looking for volunteers for an experiment about memory and learning. Participants are offered $4 for an hour of their time, and Dimmo jumps at the opportunity.
6: When Dimmo arrived at Yale, he was greeted by somebody by the name of Mr. Williams.
0: Mr. Williams explains that he will be administering the test and that another volunteer will be stationed in a separate room. Then, Williams assigns the men two distinct roles.
6: Dimo was assigned to play the teacher, while the other man was assigned to be the learner.
0: Mr. Williams informs Dimo that he is to read a series of word pairs to the learner over an intercom. If the learner fails to remember a pair, Dimo is given a macabre responsibility.
6: Demos task was to apply punishment.
0: He is instructed to administer an electric shock using this generator box, now on display at the Center for the History of Psychology. The buttons represent varying degrees of voltage.
6: At one end of the box is slight shock all the way up to moderate shock, strong shock, intense shock, right up until you get to triple X with no words written beneath it.
0: As the experiment begins, the learner remembers several word pairs correctly, but he soon makes his first mistake.
6: After he made the first error, Dimo hit the button intended to release a 15-volt shock.
0: The punishment seems mild, but this is only the beginning.
6: Every time the learner made an error, Dimo was instructed to increase the punishment by 15 volts.
0: With each wrong answer, Demo ups the severity, causing what seems to be a distressing amount of pain to the learner.
6: As Demo went further up the scale, he began to fear for the learner's health. After a particularly intense shock, the learner screamed out in agony and said that he did not want to continue the experiment.
0: A worried Demo tells Mr. Williams he can't keep hurting the man. But the experimenter pressures Demo to go on.
6: He said to Demo, it is essential that you continue.
0: Despite Williams' persistence, Demo is adamant.
6: Demo was, in fact, worried that if he went up further, that he could kill the learner.
0: Demo withdraws from the experiment and is perplexed by the harrowing experience. So is there more to this sadistic study than meets the eye? Scientists from Yale University's Department of Psychology are conducting an experiment on learning and memory. When a participant incorrectly answers a question, another subject is instructed to administer a punishment, potentially lethal electric shocks. So what is the purpose behind this sadistic experiment? In 1963, an article is published in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology divulging the true nature of the experiments. As well as Joseph Dimo, 39 other volunteers between the ages of 20 and 50 took part. Some of the tests were filmed.
6: What was revealed was that the only true naive subject in this whole experiment was in fact the teacher. The learner and the experimenter were both actors.
0: And while Dimo and the others thought they were administering potentially lethal shocks... This was not the case.
6: The shock box was a prop. It was not functional in any way.
0: So who was behind this experiment? And what was his goal?
6: The mastermind of these experiments was, in fact, a social psychologist named Stanley Milgram.
0: And it seems his inspiration for the study was the trial of one of history's greatest monsters.
6: At the same time, Adolf Eichmann was on trial for Nazi war crimes.
0: A lieutenant colonel under Adolf Hitler, Eichmann faces numerous charges as one of the chief organizers of the Holocaust.
6: His defense, essentially, was that he was not responsible for the crimes that he had committed. He was told by higher-up officials to commit these acts, and he did so under their authority.
0: Professor Milgram was fascinated by Eichmann's defense— and designed a study in order to understand the extremes regular people will go to when pressured by authority. And his results are shocking. While Joseph Demo abandoned the experiment, a majority of the participants heeded authority and inflicted what they thought was the maximum amount of pain.
3: 70
6: volts. Ah! 65% of participants were willing to go all the way up to the triple-X shock level.
0: Milgram's work becomes a landmark study in psychology, but also raises serious ethical issues.
6: Many people argued that the participants were put under undue psychological distress uh, for the sake of science. In
0: 1974, Congress introduces regulations to safeguard participants in clinical research. Despite the controversy, Milgram's experiment has a huge impact on the way we think about human behavior. And today, this box at the Center for the History of Psychology serves as a reminder of a groundbreaking study that shocked the world. Lubeck, Maine. This tiny fishing village sits on the easternmost point of the contiguous United States and was once the sardine canning capital of the world. And right on the shoreline is a restored turn-of-the-century general store, which is now home to the Lubeck Historical Society. This collection features functional relics like vintage hand tools, a giant fishing net, and typical kitchen supplies from the early 20th century. But just outside the museum is one oversized article with no apparent practical purpose. It's a large iron
7: pot weighing about 100 pounds, with platinum rods that go down
0: into the pot. As Lubeck Historical Society member Cecil Moores can attest, a machine like this once held the promise of unimaginable wealth.
7: This piece of equipment was at the center of a bizarre hunt
0: for hidden riches. What mysterious function did this device perform? And how did it transform a quiet coastal village into a boomtown? 1897, Lubeck, Maine. A ship bearing two strangers arrives in this tranquil harbor town. 31 year old Baptist minister Prescott Jernigan and his friend Charles Fisher bring with them astonishing news for the community. They
7: state that there are millions of dollars in gold flowing through the Lubeck Narrows
0: every day. The presence of trace metals such as gold in seawater is widely known. But concentration levels are so small that no one has found a profitable way to remove it. But Jernigan alleges that he has a device which can extract the precious commodity, and he calls it the gold accumulator. Jernigan says that the device relies on a proprietary mix of chemicals placed in the bottom of a basin, which is electrified by a pair of platinum
7: rods. As the seawater passes through the accumulator, Gold is extracted from the seawater and accumulates in
0: the bottom of the bowl. But the people are skeptical of the stranger's claims, so Jernigan offers to give a demonstration. With the accumulator attached to a long rope, he gently lowers it into the bay water and then asks everyone to return the following day. When they
7: did come back, Jernigan pulled up his accumulator And what the townspeople see absolutely astonishes them. Specks of gold. The people were
0: like, this is amazing. This invention really works. Jernigan estimates that just one accumulator can extract nearly half a gram of gold over a 24-hour period. And that this venture could bring hundreds of high-paying jobs to the small town. Investors throughout the Northeast scramble to buy a stake in Jernigan and Fisher's new corporation the Electrolytic Marine Salts Company.
7: Jernigan had sold 350,000 shares at a dollar a share in three days. In 1897, that's a tremendous
0: amount of money. They find an old grist mill right on the coast and hire dozens of local workers. And soon, they are building accumulators and collecting gold on a massive scale. Over the course of the next
7: year, the factory's up to 200, 250 accumulators, each making $239 a day, which is about $6,500 in
0: today's currency. And as the company thrives, so do the people of Lübeck. Over the next year, production at the electrolytic Marine Salt Company factory mysteriously slows down, and anxious investors turn to Jernigan and Fisher for answers. They claim, with
7: the amount of rainfall this spring, there's too much fresh water flowing through the accumulators. They're
0: not producing the gold that they should. Investors are relieved it's just a minor setback. However, when weather conditions improve, production doesn't pick up. And suddenly, the accumulators stop collecting any gold at all. Everyone is looking for an explanation. But as the demand for answers rises, Jernigan and Fisher skip town. And in July 1898, the factory closes. 700 men lose their jobs. Several months later, reporters receive a startling piece of news from Jernigan.
7: Jernigan confesses that he and Fisher have fled abroad with an estimated $300,000.
0: And he reveals in the press that the real secret behind the accumulators was an experienced diver, his business partner, Charles Fisher. Jernigan purchased gold, then Fisher secretly planted it in submerged accumulators to be collected later by unsuspecting workers. This gold was then shown to investors who sunk
7: money into the company. This money... Fisher would in turn use to buy more gold to salt the accumulator. But their scheme ran into problems. Jernigan explains that they were expanding too quickly. They couldn't buy enough gold to salt all the accumulators they had. That's when they decide to flee with the money.
0: Jernigan and Fisher's deception leaves countless investors holding hundreds of thousands of shares of worthless stock. Incredibly, this scheming duo never faced justice for the fraud, hiding out in various other countries. However, a guilty conscience causes Jernigan to send back $75,000 as compensation to some of his victims. And today, this simulated accumulator at the Lubeck Historical Society is a physical reminder of the two daring fraudsters who turned this small town into the center of a make-believe gold rush. Los Angeles, California, is known as a playground of the rich and famous. But just a century and a half ago, it was regarded as the toughest and most lawless city west of Santa Fe. Overlooking this once rough-and-tumble town stands the Autry. Established by movie cowboy and music icon Gene Autry, the museum is dedicated to preserving the history of the American West. On display are a pair of antique bison chairs made from mahogany and rosewood, a cash register from a 19th century saloon, and a sculpture of a Native American firing an arrow to the sky to bring rain. But according to curator Jeffrey Richardson, among these intricately crafted pieces is one object that is comparatively plain. The artifact,
4: is made primarily of steel and wood. It has a nice rich brown patina, and when it was originally
0: produced, it was nothing spectacular. Despite its ordinary appearance, this shotgun belonged to a rather unique character. He was quite dapper.
4: He was quite refined. But yet, he was an outlaw. He was a criminal.
0: Who wielded this weapon, and how did he earn one of the most unusual reputations in the Wild West? July 26, 1875, 80 miles south of Sacramento, California, a stagecoach operated by Wells Fargo transports a group of passengers and a lockbox containing banknotes and gold. But unexpectedly, the stagecoach comes to a halt, and a man wearing a flour sack and wielding a shotgun makes a very specific demand. He wanted
4: all the gold and the money that was in the Wells Fargo lockbox.
0: The terrified passengers quickly surrender the contents of the box. One woman, fearing she'll be robbed next, offers her personal cash to the armed outlaw. But the bandit's reaction leaves everyone baffled.
4: The robber very graciously said, ma'am, I'm not here for your money. I'm here for the money of Wells Fargo.
0: The task of investigating the bizarrely chivalrous heist falls on Wells Fargo detective James Hume, but his examination of the crime is fruitless. What Hume ultimately came to find out was that there was
4: very little to go on from this initial robbery.
0: Soon, there's news of another robbery about 100 miles north of the first, and then a third by the Oregon border. With each heist, the story's the same.
4: The same character, the same flower mask with the eyes cut out and treated everyone that he dealt with with respect, was very kind, was very gentle.
0: In robbery after robbery, the masked man wields this shotgun, the same one on display at the Autry in Los Angeles. But when Hume gets called to the scene of the fourth holdup, he makes a strange discovery. On a nearby tree stump, he finds a note written in verse it was actually
4: a poem that somewhat was gloating, somewhat taking aim at Wells Fargo to let them know that uh, there was this individual who
0: was doing this. The poem is signed, Black Bart. Over the next seven years, this brazen but polite criminal robs 23 more stagecoaches, never harming a soul and amassing a sizable fortune. On November 3rd, 1883, a masked man stops another stagecoach. And his polite manner leaves the driver with no doubt. It is none other than the infamous Black Bart. But this time, a passenger decides to take a stand and opens fire. Black Bart flees, but not before making a crucial mistake. In a moment of panic, he drops his suitcase. When Wells Fargo's James Hume gets his hands on the suitcase, he finds the key to unlocking the mystery of the Gentleman Bandit. One of the pieces in his suitcase is a handkerchief that has a laundry stamping on it. Hume tracks the stamp to a well-known laundry in San Francisco, where the proprietor says it belongs to a regular customer, a successful mining executive by the name of Charles Bowles. Hume and his team use this information to set up a meeting with a man, albeit under false pretenses. Hume and others, in effect,
4: trick Black Bart into coming to their office to
0: discuss some mining business. But when the two sit down to talk, Hume wastes no time in getting down to a different kind of business. It soon becomes clear to Charles Bowles that they are there to
4: ask many questions related to several stagecoach robberies that have taken place over the last few years.
0: Under intense pressure, Bowles breaks down and confesses. He is Black Bart. Bowles admits that despite his successes in the mining business, he often lived beyond his means. He liked fancy clothes. He liked nice restaurants. He
4: liked being associated with the finer things in life. When he had enough money, he didn't commit crimes. But when that money started to run low, he would go out and commit another robbery.
0: But the bandit explains he always followed a strict moral code. To protect those he robbed, he never even loaded his gun. When his case goes to trial, Bowles is sentenced to six years in prison. And today, this shotgun sits at the Autry, once wielded by the Gentleman Bandit, one of the most famous and polite outlaws in California history. Founded in 1812 at the confluence of the Scioto and Olentangy Rivers, Columbus, Ohio is now home to the Ohio State Buckeyes. And no place captures the city's love of sports better than Martin's Baseball Museum. This small institution is a personal labor of love for baseball historian Tracy Martin. His collection includes vintage uniforms, brown rawhide balls, and knobbed baseball bats made from ax handles. But one
5: artifact here bears scant resemblance to anything we know from the game today. It's brown in color, it's a wrinkly piece of leather, and it's about six inches long, and it dates back to the 1870s. This unassuming piece of
0: equipment enabled a new competitive technique that eventually transformed the sport.
5: This was one of the most revolutionary innovations in sports history, and it changed the game of baseball forever. How is this early baseball mitt linked to
0: an historic turning point in America's national pastime? Brooklyn, New York, the summer of 1863. Teenager Arthur Cummings is the pitcher for his neighborhood baseball club. While he shows talent as a hurler in the early days of the game, the pitcher is considered the least important position on the field. At the time, pitchers lobbed the ball underhanded, while their catchers crouched 20 feet behind the plate, fielding balls with their bare hands. Well,
5: in 1863, baseball was still in its infancy. The pitcher's role was to put the ball where the batter wanted it, and if he wasn't doing that, the umpire would instruct him, "Sir, please place the ball." where the striker would like the baseball.
0: But Arthur Cummings believes there's more to being a pitcher than just serving up
5: hits for the batters. Young Arthur really thinks that the current way of pitching is kind of boring. So he really wants to challenge the pitching practices. The young pitcher
0: begins dreaming up ways to cause the opposition to swing and miss. One day, while tossing clamshells at the beach with his friends,
5: inspiration strikes. He noticed that when he threw the clamshells into the water, that right before they hit the water, they were curved slightly, and a light bulb went off in his head, and he just wondered if he could possibly do that with a baseball. Cummings becomes obsessed with the idea of throwing a pitch that curves in mid-flight. He would try to hold the ball different ways. He would put his fingers on different sides of the stitching. He would twist his wrist when he threw the ball. For years, Cummings hones his secret technique. He knew that there was a time coming where he would be able to try this pitch that he had been practicing for so long. In 1867,
0: Arthur's Club, the Brooklyn Excelsiors, faces off against a powerful team from Harvard University. As the end of the game draws near, Archie Bush, the league's best hitter, steps into the batter's box. With two strikes against the slugger, Cummings decides it's time to unleash
5: his experimental pitch. So he rears back, delivers the ball, and at the last moment, he twists his wrist perfectly. But all of a sudden, the pitch drops off out of the way. Bush swings and misses, strike three, he's out. He can't figure out what happened. It seems Cummings has mastered the elusive pitch.
0: But there's a problem. The spinning ball takes an erratic bounce, skipping away from the catcher and allowing the Harvard man on third base to score the winning run. And much to Cummings' despair, it's a problem that dogs him in game after game.
5: The pitch works great to get the batters to strike out, but there's a huge problem here. It also deceives the catcher. By the summer of 1868,
0: Arthur Cummings is pitching with a new team, the Brooklyn Stars. He also has a new catcher, a hard-nosed Civil War vet named Nat Hicks. The pair sets about solving the great curveball dilemma. The problem stems from the catcher's distance behind home plate. With a traditional underhanded pitch, the ball bounces straight to the catcher 20 feet behind the batter. But when the curve takes its first bounce, the tight rotation of the ball causes it to bound away, sending the catcher scrambling. So Hicks
5: proposes a solution. And he tells Cummings, maybe I'll move closer to the plate behind the batter. And he tells Cummings, I'll catch it on the fly. Hicks' plan
0: works. The new positioning allows Hicks to catch the ball before it strikes the ground. And it's not long before the pair takes the baseball world by storm.
5: This new system has made them an unstoppable duo. Cummings and Hicks together wins four championships in a row for the Brooklyn Stars. But
0: the new style takes its toll on Nat Hicks. Game after game, his hands
5: are bruised and bloodied from catching the hard ball. He starts to experience multiple injuries, so he comes up with the idea of taking a pair of workman's gloves and cutting the fingers off so that he can have protection for his hands while he fields the curveball.
0: The end result is a glove like this one, now on display at Martin's Baseball Museum. The glove allows Hicks to absorb the constant impacts behind the plate. And this new piece of equipment soon finds its way to baseball diamonds everywhere. This was the precursor of the modern glove that we know today in baseball. And today, this primitive piece of baseball equipment in Tracy Martin's collection in Columbus, Ohio, reminds us of the revolutionary pitch that changed America's game forever. Established by the French as a fur trading post in 1634, Green Bay, Wisconsin, is one of the oldest permanent settlements in the United States. Today, this region's past is celebrated at the Neville Public Museum of Brown County. On display is an enormous model of a mastodon, Native American beadwork, and an ornate 1890s Holzman automobile. But among these items of grandeur is an artifact with a deceptively simple appearance that belies its historic significance.
8: It's rectangular, made out of silk, about 17 inches by 14 inches, and has a beautiful brocade of flowers on the edges.
0: According to curator Louise Fotenauer, this humble handkerchief tells a fascinating tale of one of Wisconsin's most intriguing characters.
8: This relic was used as rock-solid evidence of one man's aristocratic lineage.
0: To whom did this handkerchief belong? And what's the story behind his royal claim to fame? 1793, France. Paris is in a bloody state of chaos. After years of resistance, working-class revolutionaries have overthrown the monarchy. King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette are arrested, tried for treason, and beheaded. And it seems not even their eight-year-old son, Louis Charles, is immune to the tumult. It is believed that the heir to the throne, or Dauphin, is arrested and locked away in the temple prison. But as the smoke settles, loyalists to the throne begin to whisper that the heir has been rescued from this cruel fate.
8: The Royalists believed that an imposter had been placed in Louis Charles' place, that he had been secreted away and sent overseas for safekeeping.
0: Revolutionaries vehemently deny this claim. And two years later, they announce that Louis Charles has died of tuberculosis in prison. Fall, 1851, Wisconsin. An Episcopal priest named John H. Hansen traveling by train to New York strikes up a conversation with a fellow passenger.
8: The clergyman met another traveler, Native American missionary Eliezer Williams. As their trip
0: continues, Williams reveals something shocking. That he is, in fact, the heir to the French throne, Louis Charles. He explains that he discovered his remarkable heritage just a few years earlier when he was visited on a steamboat by a representative of the French monarch, Prince de Joinville, The royal revealed that at the age of eight, Williams was placed in the care of a Native American family, far from the murderous gaze of the revolutionaries. Williams explains that he was stunned by the revelation, but informed the prince that he had no interest in pursuing his claim to the throne. Hanson finds the tale unconvincing, and asks Williams how he remained ignorant of his lineage for so long. Williams explains that a boyhood head injury had left him with only a few fleeting memories from his youth. Once they reach New York, the two men part ways, but Hansen is intrigued by Williams' tale and is determined to find out if it's true. And soon he tracks down the very captain of the steamboat where the Prince de Joinville and Williams supposedly met.
8: The ship captain confirmed that Williams and the prince did indeed meet on his vessel and that they had a long conversation.
0: Hansen then consults with associates of the royal family and discovers that Williams bears a striking resemblance to the Dauphin and possesses the same distinguishing marks.
8: Both had scars on their wrists and knees. There were also vaccination marks on the arms.
0: After a two-year investigation,
8: Hansen is convinced
0: that Williams is indeed the Dauphin of France, and in 1853 publishes a magazine article bolstering the claim. With Hansen's very public support, Williams' life is radically transformed.
8: Williams was a popular party guest by the wealthy. He was wined and dined in exchange for sharing his story.
0: As proof of his heritage, he shows off a fine silk handkerchief, now on display at the Neville Public Museum, which he says the Prince de Joinville sent him as a gift of goodwill. Not everyone is so certain.
8: There were many skeptics who believed Williams was a fraud and had concocted this story just for fame and glory.
0: Williams maintains that he is, in fact, the lost Dauphin. But in 1858, he dies, taking the truth with him to the grave. It's not until 2000 that the technology exists to put this controversy to rest for good. Researchers discover a macabre relic, the preserved heart of the boy who died in Temple Prison. And they compare its DNA to that from a sample of Marie Antoinette's hair, which had been stored in a locket.
8: The test results were stunning. It was a familial match proving that the lost Dauphin died in prison and that the heart belonged to the lost Dauphin.
0: It seems Williams' account was nothing more than a hoax. But what of the meeting of the Prince de Joinville? Some speculate that it was simply a chance encounter that inspired Williams to concoct his royal farce. Today, this handkerchief, now on display at the Neville Public Museum of Brown County, is a reminder of the enduring legend of the lost prince, and a man who tried to make it his own. From an incendiary death, to a shocking experiment, a gentlemanly bandit, to a revolutionary baseball pitch. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.